Welcome back to The Zombie Coder, where we believe less is more and worse is better. This is once again the lead undead software engineer, Andrew, coming at you from a small family homestead in the Midwest. This is episode, I believe, 13, hopefully I got that right, and the concluding episode on a series related to Bitcoin, Git, and blockchain technologies, or as we'll find out shortly, the idea of the Merkle tree. Now, in some ways, I think this episode might have actually been better served as the first episode in the series. And indeed, uh, when I'm looking back at my notes here, I feel that I might have been burying the lead, so to speak. Well, why did I order them the way I did? And I think the answer is quite simply, I am a bottom-up thinker. I prefer to think of things as they work and then kind of go to the top level and look down from there. And sometimes I think the journey as to how you get at a technology is just as important as the end results. And in this particular case, I think that is especially important to those trying to understand it. If you have looked at the interplanetary file system and really any of the presentations I've seen on that particular technology... It is really confusing uh, what they are getting at, especially if you want to just kind of get to, well, what does it do and why is it useful and why should I care? So I hope that as we wrap this series up, you have a really good understanding of the uses of these technologies and how they all fit together. And that helps inform you as to, well, removing some of the badly applied terminology or some of the mysticism around both Bitcoin and Git. So to start off the concluding episode here, I would like to introduce the concept of what I would call the hash world. Now, the hash world is this place where all of human knowledge, where really all of, you know, it's a universal knowledge, anything, any piece of knowledge has an address to it, sort of like a Dewey Decimal System for the universe. Now, this concept of the hash world, it might sound fantastical, like, is it really possible to assign a integer or a number to every bit of information that we might ever create? If you look at the size of a SHA-256 hash, that includes almost enough bits to singly assign one number to every atom in the universe. So basically, if you pick an atom at random, it would have a number assigned to it. If you look at the SHA-256, 384, SHA-512, those actually include more than enough bits to singly address every atom in the universe. That says with a uh, number base that size, we can actually pick any given atom in the universe and have it have its own number, have it have, have its own meaning. And the argument here is going to be that uh, when you look at files we create, we're going to create substantially fewer files overall than the number of atoms in the universe. There are some counter-arguments to what I just said, and the, the most obvious one, if you're a computer scientist, is going to be, well, what about the birthday rule, or this idea that, you know, if you have 365 people in a room, you had that 366 person, you must have at least one person that has the same birthday as somebody else. Well, that is accurate, but the way that we can get around that is by saying that, first of all, the hash does not allow us to recreate the original file from scratch. 
it is only an ID. So we're not communicating all of the information that is in that original file. The second thing we're going to say is that the likelihood of having that accidental collision is just extremely unlikely. To illustrate, imagine that you had two people uh, go out to the beach and try to pick out the same grain of sand at random. So we just send two people out, say, hey, here's this beach. Can you come back and identify the same grain of sand? Uh, just pick one out. Now, just to continue that thought, we're not talking about the same grain of sand on the beach as far as the probability goes. We're actually talking about the same atom in the universe. So, given a random person, pick out a random atom in the universe. Well, what is the likelihood that you're going to have two people pick out that same atom? So, if you keep that in mind, the time we create the first artifact for the hash, you're almost mining it out. Like, you are... At that point in time, you're deciding that this artifact or this file here is going to be the one associated, or you're discovering the file that's going to be associated with your final hash. It's really kind of an amazing thought that you can look at this number system and essentially have all of knowledge that will be found uh, addressable already. Um, now, you can't necessarily come up with that, that address from uh, or that content, though. So the act of creating the artifact or the act of creating the file is uh, discovering for the first time what's going to be at that address. So, and I, I hear somebody now yelling, okay, but aren't address collisions inevitable? Like, is it not going to happen? Well, again, we've kind of already acknowledged just the sheer improbability of having it happen. And indeed, we can look at an example of the Git ecosystem, which uses smaller hashes than I've been discussing. It uses a SHA-1 or a 160-bit digest. And in the case of Git, with so many people using it, so many Git repositories out there, so many projects based off the technology, there have not yet been hash collisions outside of the hash collisions that were manually created. Indeed, you could look at it as, given that hash, you can create a spaceship to navigate to that corner of the universe where that hash exists and find the information there, or mine the, that information there, so that you do have duplicate hashes. If we just kind of say for a second, okay, let's acknowledge that these duplicates are possible, that it is theoretically uh, possible for two files to have the same information associated with it. How can we get away from uh, this reality? There's really two answers. One, which I'll just repeat this one again because it, it really is the central theme here. We're relying on it being very difficult to recreate that hash. You would have to work very hard to rediscover uh, another artifact that goes to the same hash or digest. And the second answer that really just kind of skips it all together is, okay, yeah, it's possible, but we can rely on a degree of sideband data, a trusted server, or a degree of difficulty um, to create the hash and then point to uh, what the ecosystem recognizes as the resultant value, and that allows us to kind of get away from that. So if there is a duplicate, we just say, okay, well, with the server we trust more is the one that uh, gets to decide what it is. 
So the important thing to realize about the hash world is that we now have this system, this way of labeling data that anybody can do that we can assign and know the ID for any given file that ever was or ever will be created. Now earlier on when people started researching this, it immediately had some very obvious applications and the largest of which is the Merkle tree or essentially the magic data structure that is going to be used for the rest of this conversation in various ways. And the idea of the Merkle tree is that once you have a hash from a trusted source, you can build up the data from untrusted sources. How does this work? Well, you need to first have the hash. That's the important thing. You have to be given the hash up front. And then you go and you ask a bunch of different people for instructions on how to get the data associated with the hash. Now this is called a Merkle tree because after you have that first hash, when you ask the network where you ask the people for instructions on how to build the piece of data, they give you back a, another set of hashes that are the subdivisions for your original file or the blocks for your original file. And that may continue on for several layers. So you might have three or four or 10 or 20 layers of data that you combine Find the hash for that, recombine it, find the hash for that, recombine it, and then find your root hash or the total hash for your data. Now you might also hear this data structure referred to as a Merkle DAG or a directed acyclic graph. And I'm not going to go into too much depth on exactly what a DAG is, but we'll need to define it here to help understanding. So first of all, uh, we can look at the acronym, and it's just a computer science acronym for Directed Acyclic Graph. What's a graph? Well, uh, your kind of mind will probably go immediately to the old bar charts uh, that you might have seen um, in high school or elementary school. In the computer science world, a graph would be more akin to what you might see in a procedural police show where you have a board with pins and pictures and string connecting those pictures, or nodes and edges, where the node would be the pin and the edge would be the string connecting the pin. A more illustrative example might be a train routing network. So you have your train stations, the nodes, and then you have the track between the stations, uh, which would be, again, the edges. Now, when we say a directed graph, we're adding directionality or arrows to those edges. The idea here would be that your train tracks run in one or the other direction. You could say they run in both directions, um, but that gives you this concept of the directed graph. And finally, the directed acyclic graph is where we say that trains aren't allowed to revisit the same station, that everybody must go in one direction. Or another way to look at this might be as like a maybe a pipe system where you have water go in and the water must always flow down and you don't have any pups, pumps to go back up uh, to the root of your pipe system. 
Now, if you're looking again at the Merkle tree that we kind of talked about earlier, you can picture that as sort of like an ancestry for a person in, in appearance. You have the root of the tree, which would be the person, and then you have uh, the ancestors of that person going up and dividing out and dividing out and dividing out again and again. Now, a directed acyclic graph does allow for like kind of the circumstance of cousin marriage or you know old uh, European aristocracy where you might have uh, some degree of inbreeding going on. But time must always flow forward, right? Like you can't be your own grandfather um, without some degree of time travel or paradoxical thinking. Now, if we are creating a graph based on hashes, one of the more interesting things to do is to encode the link of the node inside the node itself. So the process for creating a new node involves first creating a new piece of data, and then inside that piece of data, we identify the ancestor nodes, and then we hash the data itself, so we're hashing a hash now, and that creates a resultant hash which we can reference. Then that resultant hash acts as a node in the graph, which simply just points back to the ancestors. Now, how might this be applied? Well, let's take the case of the original Merkle tree that we kind of discussed. Now, in order for this to work, you have to really divide up the file up front and kind of know the contents and all the divisions of the file as they're going to go down your tree or go back up your tree if you flip it upside down. Well, to do this, again, we're going to take our file and divide it into really small chunks. And let's say that we have eight chunks total. We create a hash for each one of those chunks, so now we have eight hashes. And then we're going to divide that by two, so we're going to have four hashes from that, each of which is referring to uh, two parents. And divide that by two, so you have two hashes, and then divide that by two, so you have one at the top. You create each level of the tree by referring to the ancestor. And then when you want to recreate the file, you simply traverse that down in order to figure out the uh, base level hashes or the base level data associated with the file. Now we have kind of an interesting data structure we're starting to develop. And one of the properties of this, and it's kind of forced because there's no way to easily create a hash, remember, is that it is one way. So Again, a node can't be its own grandfather. Time must always flow forward. Now, when we go back and look at this with relation to the hash world, the interesting thing to notice is that the hashes can identify either data or potentially nodes or potentially, well, again, any file, right? So any bit of data we can associate with a hash and really given a hash value, if you have somebody that has an understanding of that hash, they can communicate back to you, oh, that's this file, or oh, that's a hash node in Bitcoin, or oh, that's a hash node in Mercurial, or oh, that's a reference to this other piece of data. Anything. It can be anything associated. And that kind of gets into where IPFS is an interesting technology because they try to uh, develop a kind of formal or, or protocol level definition for how these things are all supposed to relate to each other. But I want to get back on Hash World and see if we can start looking at the benefits of the technology as well as the limitations. So the amazing thing about Hashworld is that we now have a system to identify any 
previously created or newly created piece of information, any piece of information that will ever be created. Further, with HashWorld, we can now communicate large amounts of data separate from trust or verification of the data. You can have essentially two groups uh, that you're dealing with. One that gives you a hash uh, that is associated with information, and the other that would actually give you the information or host the information for you. But the limitation here is you still have to have that data stored somewhere, and you must have a method of identification to be able to know what that hash is. You can't just pick a random number and get at it uh, somehow. So in some ways here, the thing that can really hurt one's brain at a time is recognizing that communicating this hash or communicating this hash value, while you're not communicating the underlying information, you are communicating the ID of the underlying information. So if I, for example, had the hash key to maybe a pirated movie or a book, or maybe it's just a Linux distribution or a download or, you know, whatever it is, right? I can have that hash key and I can have the association of data with it, but that doesn't give me the actual data. There's no way to recreate the data itself from the hash key outside of maybe trying to uh, funnel a thousand monkeys at a, or maybe funnel a bajillion monkeys at a bajillion typewriters, right? So let's look at this as applied to uh, two technologies. And the technologies I'm going to look at are, well, the promised ones at the beginning of the series, a Git and a Bitcoin. So let's look at Git first. And Git did have predecessors. I think that's actually really important to realize. So when you look at both Git and Bitcoin, there was an enormous amount of research that went into it that actually made the implementation task of either of these fairly straightforward. Git, again, there were predecessors, and it really got its popularity by just defining some command line tooling to associate the hash chain with patches and diff sets and files. So all Git really does is say, okay, these files are associated with these hashes, and here's the history of these hashes to build a history of uh, files or a snapshot series. Of course, when we look at the other mechanism of Git, namely like branches and labels, all that is doing is really just applying a name to a given uh, given hash or giving you an entry point to the hash tree so you can do some basic analysis on it. Moving on to Bitcoin, the main innovation there was actually defining the concept of proof of work by expensive calculations of hashes, and in particular, really taking a look at this property of the hash functions we talked about earlier, where changing a small amount of data would let you change a significant number, a random number of digits, or half of the digits on average. And we apply that in Bitcoin to essentially zero out. So we're making these minor tweaks to the data and trying to zero out the first several bits and the cost of that increases as the more uh, bits you're seeking to zero out. So every time uh, the Bitcoin uh, proof of work gets more difficult, what you're looking at is having to add another digit to that series of digits that you're requiring a value on. But that said, the rest of the Bitcoin technology, the Merkle tree base, the hash functions themselves, 
All of that was a known up front and indeed researched quite heavily prior to the invention of Bitcoin. In fact, as I mentioned in that uh, earlier episode, the underlying algorithm of Bitcoin, the key one, is the SHA-2 algorithm, which was again uh, an NSA uh, convention or an NSA-created item. So the thing I hope you take away from Hashworld here is that these hashes, these magic functions, can be used to really identify any piece of data that we would ever want to identify. And then we've looked at kind of the application as far as how Git and Bitcoin both uh, make great use of these functions and these uh, trees and data structures. And now I'd really like to take a forward look at what I think the future holds for Hashworld. And the easiest way to do that that I can think of is actually to look at the two major challenges of Hashworld. The first of which is mapping it out. And by that I mean creating a relation of meaningful data to hashes. So that you're being able to, for example, say, okay, this hash uh, corresponds to maybe a Linux distribution download, maybe a video of your dog playing fetch, Uh, maybe it's a cute cat picture. The second item is actually accessing data given a hash from a network. And so that, again, is, okay, now that I have uh, my map providers given me uh, the idea that, okay, this hash is associated with a Linux distribution, I would like to download that, and now I want to access the network to do that. Now, the advantage of Hashworld is that you do not necessarily have to have the same provider for both of those tasks. So you could have like a database of interesting hashes in one place and a network of data providers in the others. The network of data providers and the naming of hashes are two very big projects that the interplanetary file system folk are trying to take on. I do think they could be a bit more clear about what they're doing, but at the end of the day, they are creating a distributed system for doing either one of those. They are using a concept of a distributed hash table, and there's a lot of academic research going on on distributed hash tables right now, how best to do them, how best to utilize them, and there are many use cases. Indeed, there are many different algorithms uh, going back all the way to uh, the initial podcast here where I discussed uh, UUCP. That would be one potential way, uh, data duplication or store and forward, would be one way to build a distributed hash table. Now, I think the research into these distributed systems is really awesome because, in my view, it is the most resilient method of communicating information uh, without uh, concern over uh, sensors or censorship or really, in so many ways, I I think it would help protect our freedom of speech and really privacy to an extent. It is currently a little bit contrary to the major mass of development as far as the internet goes. We're seeing more and more centralization on the internet in general as most people kind of collapse into a few major websites or centralized locations. But the technology, the ability to develop this, I think, as time goes on, I'm hoping, at least, that it will win out, and the ability to communicate and publish your own data will become a very powerful and very meaningful thing in our lives. 
Indeed, dare I say it, the ability to create identifiers for data like this is in some ways, at least in my mind, perhaps one of the uh, most interesting technological achievements of our day and age. Unfortunately, I think it's one that we have not really begun to explore yet. And that likely means there's some opportunity there if you are wanting to be the next uh, Bill Gates or Steve Jobs. In any case, for the time being, that's going to be the end of my discussion of the underlying technologies of Bitcoin and Git and uh, blockchain. And hopefully now you have an understanding of how you would actually go about developing um, said thing from scratch. Um, one interesting project to do would be to create your own Git sort of a version management system or your own little blockchain and to kind of see how it works. There's a few I might link in the show notes here. Until next time, this is the Zombie Coder, out. Music provided by Audionautics. This podcast and others available at Stitcher.com or check out just this podcast at TextDex.com.